This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome back to our show attorney John Pucci. John is a partner in the law firm of Buckley Richardson. He's a defense attorney. He has been a U.S. attorney. He was with the Department of Justice for some 10 years, and he was head of the Department of Justice's office in Springfield for many years as well. John is back with us today because I want to talk to him about Donald Trump. And in particular, I want to talk about the execution of the search warrant at Mar-a-Lago. And I want to talk about what happened yesterday, which is that Donald Trump, in a deposition, took the Fifth Amendment, that is, exercised his constitutional right to not answer a question that might tend to incriminate him some 400 times. Fascinating was seeing the clips of Donald Trump saying, why would anyone, this was on the campaign trail in 2016, why would anyone like the mafia take the fifth if they don't have something to hide? Which was, well, pretty interesting to hear from Donald Trump having just, as he said, exercised the right that every person in the United States has to not give testimony, answer questions under oath, or answer questions at all to law enforcement that might tend to incriminate him. So, Let's start there, and then I want to get to the search warrant because it's a fascinating question. I think a lot of people don't really understand. What's the standard for having a search warrant issued? Who reviewed it at the Department of Justice? Was there a judge involved, and what was the judge's standard? We're going to get to all that in a second. John yeah. Pucci, thanks so much for being with us. Let's start with yesterday and Donald Trump in front of a court reporter and being asked questions by prosecutors in a civil case Bring us up to date. Tell us what happened and tell us why it's significant. John. So yesterday, uh, well, let me, by way of background, there, there was a civil fraud case brought against Trump and his son and his uh, companies and various other people. Uh, and the theory of the fraud case brought by the New York, uh, New York Attorney General is that uh, the Trump organization and Trump himself committed fraud by um, manipulating their real estate appraisals. They were real estate companies. So they manipulated their appraisals, the allegations are, by raising the value of the properties uh, for purposes of making loan applications so that the banks would uh, provide funding at elevated rates. And by raising them, fraudulently raising them and falsifying the appraisal values, they got more financing than they were entitled to. And then at the same, in the same space, one category over, those same appraisals, they, um, they lowered those appraisals substantially, uh, the, those appraisals being the ones sent to the um, taxing authorities in New York City and New York State so that they would pay less taxes um, than were appropriate for the properties that they owned. So they took the appraisals in one direction for the banks and in the other direction uh, for the New York tax authorities, and both of them were false, and those entities, banks, and the, and the tax authorities, the state of New York, were defrauded. That's, that the, that's the civil case. So yesterday, after fighting tooth and nail with the attorney general of uh, New York to, to w fight off this deposition, he finally had to capitulate 
and uh, he went in and, and he, he and he took the fifth to about 400 it's reported to be four or five hundred questions that were asked to him taking the fifth meaning uh, a simple question is asked after you identify yourself I understand the only question he asked what he answered was his name so you give your name and and then the question starts sir did you own a company named Trump did you uh, take uh, uh, apply for loans did you submit appraisals uh, did you participate in the submission of the appraisals to the banks, to the taxing authorities, and to every single one of those substantive questions, he took the fifth, meaning he simply said, uh, I, I assert my constitutional right not to respond to that uh, question, and then for hours just said, uh, same answer, same answer, same answer. So that's what happened yesterday, and he admitted it, and he talked about it very publicly. So it's not a secret, and it's a fact. Okay, a couple of things about that. First of all, uh, this is not a grand jury, but it is a deposition in, in a civil matter or an investigative matter. And the participants, uh, that is the person who is being questioned, the witness, can talk about what happened. If this were a grand jury, the witness could talk about being in front of the grand jury. But otherwise, the grand jury proceedings are secret and no one else can. And that is how the prosecuting authorities here, of course, treat the deposition and should. And that leaves Trump, the only person with a megaphone, to talk about what happened. That's pretty interesting. It's an asymmetrical uh, system. Uh, and it's designed to be a asymmetrical, but it, of course, has consequences in the court of public opinion, where the only person who is speaking is Trump. The other aspect of this that I'm interested in, John, because people know that the assertion of your Fifth Amendment right in a criminal case cannot be used adversely to the person, or usually the defendant, who is asserting it. So a person has a right to remain silent to the traditional Miranda warnings. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have a right to an attorney. If you can't afford an attorney, an attorney will be appointed for you, and so on. So this is different. It's a civil matter, and a lot of discussion in the media in the last day or so in this civil matter, Trump's assertion of his Fifth Amendment right actually can be used adversely to him. Could you explain that to us? Yeah, so, so in a criminal proceeding where the defendant does not testify, the judge is required to and always instructs the jury that the defendant has no obligation to testify and you cannot hold that decision he's made against him. Right. You and that's a, let, me, let me interrupt, because actually that's uh, often a uh, at the option of the defendant, whether he wants the judge or she wants the judge to give that instruction. But the defendant has that absolute right to have that instruction. And the jury almost always is instructed exactly that way. And in civil cases um, where the defendant can, again, the defendant Trump can take the fifth and refuse to 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 testify as he did in the grand jury. The the opposing party in this case, the state uh, prosecute the state civil team uh, in the state of New York civil case can read his transcript, the ant questions and his 400 answers of pleading the fifth to the jury. So they learn in great detail about all the questions he refused to answer and then the judge gives an instruction saying that you can draw an adverse in inference in this case 
that if he had answered the questions truthfully, they would have been adverse to his position in this trial, that he is not liable for the claims against him. So the jury can then draw that inference. It's an obvious inference. His answers would have uh, would have created liability, civil liability for him. The jury can consider that information and draw that inference over 400 different questions. So it's very powerful evidence for a jury to hear. He won't answer the questions about the charges, civil charges made against him. It's very powerful evidence. We should note and we should emphasize this is a civil matter. It's not a criminal matter. He can't go to jail. He's not indicted. He's not charged with a crime. That's not what this is about. This is about money and civil liability. Let me ask you one other question I think people will be interested in, which is why t- uh, assert the Fifth Amendment privilege to every question? He gave his name and he couldn't say anything about anything. There's a real, there's an important legal reason why. Can you explain that for us? So the reason is that the record needs to be very clear what he is taking the Fifth to. Um, it can't be obscured. Uh, by a record that is uncertain in that regard. He could appeal some ruling and there could be a kerfuffle about what did you ask and why didn't you ask this? And that I would have answered that question if, it, if you'd asked that question. That's what he would be saying. You know, you only asked me three times and I only gave you three, three instances that I took the fifth. I would have answered the other 490 questions you had. By having a transcript of it, it destroys that argument and it sets it up in great detail for a judge on a motion, a motion of some sort, and for a jury to see exactly what he was asked, precisely what he was asked, and what he refused to answer. There's another aspect of this uh, that I will mention just briefly, which is the reason that a witness will assert the Fifth Amendment privilege to every question is that a witness does not have the right to pick and choose. And that comes from a legal theory called waiver, which is if the witness began to answer questions, then that witness could be compelled to answer further questions. And so when a witness is going to assert the Fifth Amendment privilege of the witness, almost always, I'd say almost invariably, will give their name, maybe their address, and that's it. Because if they answer any questions, it could be deemed a waiver of that Fifth Amendment privilege, and then they are in the soup. So that was yesterday. We still don't know, and the the civil authorities in New York have not indicated whether this matter will be pursued, whether there will be a trial, whether there will be a civil case, and we can all hear all this, whether there will be a settlement. We don't know any of that. But we do know that two days before, His home, that's former President Donald Trump's home, Mar-a-Lago, was the subject and the location of the execution of a search warrant. I'd like to know how that happens, how a search warrant is issued, who decides, what's the standard of proof, and what does it mean in terms of what the Justice Department is doing in terms of pursuing a criminal case against Donald Trump? We're going to have those answers right after this short break. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Is there corn chowder today? There are things they only make certain times of year at Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. And with the corn so tall, there might be corn chowder today. There might be blueberry pie. The kitchen garden farm in Sunderland might arrive at Paul and Elizabeth's today with eggplant or zucchini. What'll they make with those? Eating at Paul and Elizabeth's isn't exactly like eating out of your own garden, but it's close. Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant, inside Thorns in Northampton. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you. Until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. Dinner tonight starts with a tap. Tap the local hero guide on the CISA website and find farm fresh food close to where you are. There are so many farms and farm stands just minutes away. Look for the bright yellow local hero label in stores and restaurants. Local hero food, the beauty and the bounty of our fertile river valley farmlands on your dinner table tonight. The local hero guide is at the CISA website, buylocalfood.org. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with attorney John Pucci. The topic is what happened in Mar-a-Lago? How did the FBI get a search warrant? What was the standard of proof? Who ruled on it? Who approved the application? And what was the judge? There was a magistrate judge who had to approve the search warrant. Tell us about those standards. Tell us about that process, please, John. Okay, so generally speaking, a uh, search warrant is based on what is called probable cause. Um, 
and we'll get into that. But let me tell you first what physically, what the, what the documents are. There's only four relatively simple documents involved in getting a search warrant. So the people that seek the search warrant uh, are a federal or a set of federal prosecutors working with a set of agents, let's call them FBI agents in this instance, and they together make a decision that there are records that they need to seize uh, to secure. And to do that, they have to file, create four, there's four different documents. One is a search warrant application, and that's really literally a two-page document which identifies a specific crime, a specific location, and evidence that the evidence, and, and, and additional information that the evidence is presently at the location to be searched. It often identifies the alleged wrongdoer, but not always. It doesn't have to identify the wrongdoer, but it has to identify a crime, that there's evidence at that location, and the evidence is there presently. That application, a page and a half, uh, in very summary, has those words in it and a little bit of information about it. And then attached is the meat of the matter, which is an affidavit. And the affidavit is always created by an agent, let's say an FBI agent in this instance. And the affidavit is a narrative summary of what information supports the, the request for the search warrant. What was the crime? What's the evidence that's being sought? And is it presently there? And it, that affidavit can be 10 pages, it can be 20 pages, it can be 30 pages. It's sworn by the FBI agent, it can, it can attach documents. It is the meat of the matter that if you can get the affidavit, you can tell who's being investigated, what the real crime is, and how strong the evidence is. So the application and the affidavit go to a federal judge. And the federal judge, under the Constitution, it's a Fourth Amendment requires a federal judge to independently assess whether there's a, a crime's been committed, the evidence is sufficient, whether there's evidence at the location, and whether that evidence is there presently under a probable cause standard. And what that means is, would a reasonable person believe it is likely that a crime has been committed, that evidence is at that location, and it's there presently? Would a reasonable person, based on the affidavit, which is chock full of facts, the affidavit can include hearsay. It can say, the agent can say, I interviewed this witness and that witness, and they told me there were records here, and these were the records uh, that uh, we're seeking. It can reference documents that are attached. It can be, it's typically very thorough. In this kind of a case, it is at the highest level of scrutiny internally in the Department of Justice. This, has pro this affidavit and the search warrant application probably went through 10 different really, really sophisticated lawyers' hands before it got to its final stage and it was given to the judge. Once it's given to the judge, the judge, the, 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 the prosecutor and the agent go to a judge's chambers. It's a totally private setting. The judge swears the agent. The agent affirms under the penalties of perjury the information in the affidavit. The judge makes the independent determination the judge can say there's not enough here, or I'm not so sure the evidence is presently there. Uh, the judge can pick at it and send them back, say, I'm not signing this warrant, take it back to me if you think you can fill in these blanks. In most instances, and in this instance, I'm quite sure there weren't any holes in it because of the scrutiny it got uh, from the many levels, probably all the way to Merrick Garland's desk, but many levels below him in the appellate section and the criminal section and, and, and the U.S. Attorney's Office,
all of them reviewing all of this in great detail. Um, the judge signs the warrant. The person on the property owner and the person who's like maybe identified as a wrongdoer get no notice of this. They're not told we're going to search your property. It's a totally secret proceeding. The warrant, they arrive at the scene and they do the warrant. They do not give any notice to the property owner. There's no means for the property owner, Trump in this instance, to intervene, to challenge the warrant, to say it doesn't establish probable cause. All that's put aside until later, and we'll get to the later in a minute. But they make the search, and they're entitled to look anywhere that the evidence that they've identified could be. In this instance, it's boxes of records. So they're entitled to see boxes of records and take them, look in file cabinets, and Trump has said they even looked in his safe. Now that's a really interesting piece of this. It's his information they did that, and I wanna come back to that at some point, but that's how a search warrant is created. It's independently verified. It's checked and rechecked at many levels in the Department of Justice. I'm gonna bet my life that, I won't bet my life, I'll bet my law license that this affidavit is airtight, that there was evidence there of a crime and it was presently at Mar-a-Lago and they got authority and that warrant's gonna stand up based on a, on a relative, almost foolproof affidavit. How do they get into the safe? Do they say, please open it for us? And if they don't, then they can blow it open like a bad mafia movie? Yes, but they, they, they operate a little more discreetly than the uh, uh, mafia. Believe it or not, the FBI has ways to, to, to exercise its force in more discreet ways. Yeah, it, prob discreet. it probably has some people who would know how to get into the safe, who were probably, probably, probably part of the team. So what does this tell us, John? Oh, let me just back up one second, let viewers, viewers let's, let listeners know this, that should there be gross uh, improprieties and falsehoods in that affidavit. In a court case, there is a way to challenge that. It's called a Franks hearing after a case called Franks versus Delaware. I agree with John. I find it extraordinarily unlikely that there is anything that would be subject to attack in this affidavit because they realize how important how important the case is, how high the stakes are. And and the it's important to notice that the affidavit is not a public document. And it's not available to the property owner, in this case, Trump. It's a, it's a secret document that is sealed in the court where the, where the, judge, the, where the judge who got the affidavit issues a, a sealing order. It's sealed and it never gets made public and it never gets provided to the property owner unless the government decides to do that uh, or, or the target is indicted. If the target is indicted, then in a process called discovery, the government has to produce the affidavit. And it's only at that point that the, the lawyers for the indicted person, in this case, Trump, would be able to say there wasn't certain the probable cause, the warrant was flawed. You, you, you cannot introduce into evidence any of the evidence that was seized during this proceeding. But the, the papers keep saying that the application, that the search warrant would, that will tell us the story. The search warrant will tell us the story. And the search warrant, Trump has a search warrant. He should give it to us. Or what is it? The search warrant affidavit, which are the facts underlying the search, which tell the narrative story, is sealed. And it will not be made public unless the government wants to give it to Trump. And there may be a reason to do that. Uh, or uh, he's indicted. We are speaking with Attorney John Pucci. 
We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to ask this question. Is it likely that Trump is going to be indicted? And if so, what for? We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La popular iniciativa de bicicletas compartidas de la ciudad Valley Bike Share se ha visto socavada en las últimas semanas por vandalismo. La ciudad ha recibido informes de cuatro bicicletas arrojadas a un canal, bicicletas no devueltas y dejadas abandonadas, bicicletas dañadas permanentemente que implican una pérdida de $1,200 por bicicleta, cuentas falsas creadas para comprar el uso de bicicletas y las baterías que se retiran de las bicicletas y se venden. La Oficina de Planeación y Desarrollo Económico de Holyoke está pidiendo al público que informe incidentes de vandalismo al Departamento de Policía de Holyoke. Las bicicletas son propiedad de la ciudad y es ilegal hacer mal uso de ellas. La Policía de Holyoke está al tanto de la situación y tomará medidas contra quienes cometan estos delitos. En otras informaciones, el expresidente de Estados Unidos, Donald Trump, dijo el miércoles que se negó a responder preguntas durante una comparecencia ante el fiscal general del estado de Nueva York en una investigación civil sobre las prácticas comerciales de su familia, invocando la quinta enmienda constitucional, que le otorga el derecho contra la autoincriminación. Trump, su hijo Donald Trump Jr. y su hija Ivanka Trump habían luchado sin éxito para evitar comparecer a declarar en la investigación de la fiscal general del estado, Leticia James, sobre si la organización Trump Trump infló los valores inmobiliarios para obtener préstamos favorables y subestimó los valores de los activos para obtener exenciones fiscales. La decisión de Trump de no responder preguntas aún podría tener consecuencias. Si la investigación conduce a un juicio, los miembros del jurado podrían tener en cuenta su silencio. Políticamente, también podría dar municiones a los adversarios sobre si Trump tiene algo que ocultar mientras reflexiona sobre otra candidatura presidencial en 2024. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation about Donald Trump and the execution of the search, search warrant at Mar-a-Lago with Attorney John Pucci, former head of the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Springfield. John, we were talking during the break about the FBI agents who executed the warrant getting into the safe at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, you had some interesting observations about that. Could you share those with our listeners, please? Sure. I think the safe is um, a fascinating topic. Again, it, we, we, we're ending up talking about what we don't know as much as what we know. But Trump said his safe was searched. Now, with regards to the boxes of documents, uh, knowing that Trump isn't really a detail kind of guy, it may well be that he credibly can say, I never looked in the boxes. I never read those documents. If they were classified, uh, I'm sorry, uh, but I didn't understand that. I delegated that work to somebody else, period. That may be credible. What's not credible is if he has a safe and he has the combination that he didn't know what was put into the safe. So how are we going to find that out? He said that they opened the safe. So 
uh, there's a doctrine called the plain view doctrine. So the plain view doctrine says that if in fact, uh, a search warrant is authorized and the scope of it is limited to certain categories of documents um, or evidence. But in looking for those documents, the agents come upon other evidence of crimes in plain view. That's the legal standard in plain view. Then they can seize that evidence. And that in this instance could be evidence of other crimes like the January 6th insurrection or the Georgia efforts to, to fix the election there. So if the agents open the safe, to which only Donald or maybe he and his son and whoever uh, have the combination, and therefore they know what's in the safe and they see evidence on the other kinds of criminal charges, they'll be able to seize that evidence and use it. So it raises the question, what did Donald put in the safe? Well, you make the assumption, which I don't think the defense is going to allow to be assumed that Trump knew what was in the safe, that Trump was the only one who, or one of the few people who had the combination to the safe, and that I think that it would be a hotly contested issue if Trump's responsible for what's in his safe. For the exact same reasons you say he didn't look in the boxes, he may not know what's in the safe. And remember, as we started, he has that Fifth Amendment right to not testify. And so the government's going to have to prove that he had sole access, he had sole knowledge, it has to be inferred, and no one else put the stuff there. So it's not a gimme. I know we're running out of time here, but I have a question for you. Whose side are you on? <laughs> I'm just trying to... <laughs> Well, I guess I'm about to destroy my opportunity to be a juror in this case as a fair and impartial juror. So look, um, uh, what I think is important is for people to understand all of the uh, aspects of what Merrick Garland has to worry about and the Justice Department has to worry about in terms of putting together a case. The fact that we can be here and be outraged at what happened, that's all well and good. But they actually have to prove each element of the crime, which I want to get to and want to ask you about. The Presidential Papers Act... Why do we care about this? Actually, yeah, it's, it's the Presidential Records Act. Records Act, sorry. And, uh, it was actually passed into law after Nixon resisted turning over his White House papers. And they litigated that and he lost. But what the Presidential Records Act fundamentally says is the records created by the president during his presidency don't belong to the president himself or herself, himself for the history of America so far, but belong to America. And America in this instance means the archives. They belong in the archives. The president is not entitled to take public papers and uh, preserve them for his own interests or keep them from the public. Now, so if he writes love letters to you know, uh, his wife or his kids, those are not presidential papers relating to, to public business. But almost anything he does of a public nature falls within the scope of the president president records act and have to be turned over to the archives and available to historians and investigators to see what happened they belong to the public not the president personally but confidential records of the government end up in private hands used for books we read about this a lot yeah there's a minor complaint and there's you're get a story or two and then the story goes away. I mean, given all of the uh, aspects of the Trump administration and all of the corruption and the in 
and the potential, well, I think the reality, that Trump tried to subvert democracy and install himself as an authoritarian, non-elected president for another four years. Those are the things that seem to really matter. Some papers, why do we care? Papers are evidence, my friends. Papers are evidence, and you don't know uh, what the significance of them are until they become public or, or you get your hands on them and we talk about it. That's it. That's the answer. And that's where we're going to leave it today. John Pucci, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. We'll continue this conversation in forthcoming shows. Really appreciate it. Take care, Bill. Bye-bye now. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control uh, by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you, until now. Now when you call, we'll answer, and if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this. But insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. But I don't see wine here, Ringo. What do you got? Well, who am I? You're the spirit guy. Uh-oh. So you're taking me down the road of spirits. There's custom glass issues. So anything that comes in custom glass is having trouble globally. There was an American whiskey that was the bottle was causing a holdup that was hard to get, right? What one was that? Bullet bourbon. Oh, yeah, right. Which is a custom glass issue. You know, they have all the stuff. Most of these whiskeys are 3, 4, 10, 18 years old. Way before COVID, way before any supply chain issue, so it's not a production issue, it's a bottling and shipping issue. We're tasting whiskey today, and these are all going to be single malts, but a lot of the famous single malts, we're used to ordering them a certain way, but we can't order them in that way because they're not getting in enough of those things. So the price will go up 20 25 $30 on the shelf. We're not going to pass that on to the consumers, we're just going to go, we don't have it, but we have other options. These are single malt whiskey alternatives. I like cheap. Find your favorite whiskey and your next favorite whiskey at State Street. If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among coworkers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. 
In Greenfield, for those of our listeners who don't know, there is an organization, an institution, a venue called the Lava Center, the Local Access to Valley Arts, Lava. And we have with us this morning Jan Mayer, who is co-coordinator of the Lava Center and the director of A Long Moment in the South. This weekend, Friday and Saturday, August 12th and 13th at 7 o'clock, online on demand, August 18th through the 31st. So, Jan, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate your being with us in the studio. A long moment in the South. What is it? What's going to happen at the Lava Center? And why did you want to present this? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on again. It's good to be back here in person after a couple of years. Um, A long moment in the South is... uh, a novella, as, as you mentioned, but we are doing a reading of it with an ensemble of actors. So there are four actors. They take on 24-plus roles or voices from the story. And um, it's the story of a kid named Bobby who's growing up in Texarkana in the 50s. The 50s, of course, are the decade of the Cold War, of the heightened fears of communism, of still very overt racism. So all of these forces kind of swirl around him and are expressed a little bit in in his family and very much in his community of friends. And he's trying to make sense of it all as a kid growing up. Um, I wanted to do the story not only because of that content, but I've, I've uh, followed Richard Wayne Horton's writing since we first moved to the area and I started to hear him read at open mics. And as soon as I heard an excerpt from this story, I knew I wanted to do it, and I wanted to do it in this, what I call a, a book it um, fashion. And to explain that a little bit, there's a company in Seattle, Washington, that I was involved with long ago at the very inception called Book It. And it, it's a company that exists to celebrate literature on stage. So it's not about adapting a story to a play format. It's about every word of the story is performed by the actors who share the narrative role as well as give the characters voices. And I thought that would be an ideal way to approach Richard's writing. And he gave me permission to have a go at it. And so that's what we're doing. So is Richard Wayne Horton local? He is lo- uh, He lives in the Springfield area, but he's widely uh, at uh, all kinds of open mic venues in the area. He's a frequent contributor to a lot of the uh, literary journals in the area. Jan, could you go back a bit? Uh, the ensemble reading at the Lava Center this weekend is t- will be about and from a long moment in the South. Can you tell us something about the narrative arc of that novella? Mm-hmm. Um, at the beginning of the, of the piece, we see a family and an old junker of a car kind of arriving on, on the scene, as it were. And there's, there's three kids in the family, but Bobby, the, uh, the boy child, is the one that we're really focused on, and his perceptions... And we go from um, kind of setting the stage and learning a little bit about him as a child who spends a lot of time in dreamland, kind of processes the weird things that happen in the real world through his dream life. Not a one-to-one correspondence, but elements kind of flow back and forth between reality and his dreamscapes. 
And he's got very, he's really uh, like the town he lives in, which is a town that uh, is in two states at once, is borders, uh, uh, all kinds of things, uh, all kinds of, as, as, as the narrative says at the beginning, um, it's a town of connections, borders, and layers, layers underground, layers between present and past, poor and rich, country and city, dirty and clean. And Bobby's family is right at the, at the center of that, too, because one side is very poor, another side is very well-to-do. So how many actors are involved in this? Do we call this a dramatic reading? Do we call it a play? What, what's, what am I, I, what I call I, it an ensemble reading. And approximately how long is the... It runs about 65 minutes, just a little over an hour. And how many characters are there? Over 24 some of them only come in for, you know, one line here or there, the way they would in a written script, you know, a written text. And in a, again, in a usual adaptation, they would be written out to simplify and, and, you know, make things clearer. But in this case, it's the actors who are making things clear by, by moving in and out of different characters. So who are the actors who are part of Lava? Or, or, or I guess that maybe that's the wrong question altogether, who are part of this play, part of this presentation? Uh, the actors are uh, going to try to go in alphabetical order here to not show favoritism at all. Um, Robert Catlin, uh, Shannon Chabot, Tracy Grammer, and Giovanna Van Pelt. And they have, uh, for three of them, they have been involved in Lava or local access productions in the past. Um, this is the first time for Robert Catlin to be involved. Um, so tell us when the uh, shows are. Um, they are this Friday and Saturday at 7 p.m. Uh, and then after a couple of days editing, there will be an online on-demand video of it as well available for people who are either too distant to come to the Lava Center or still shy for COVID reasons or whatever. I should mention, too, that we do have a policy of asking for proof of vaccination, and we ask people to remain masked when they are in the space. And um, we don't always ask for proof of vaccination, but when people are going to be seated at an event for, you know, any time from 45 minutes to more, uh, we want that proof of vaccination, too. We try to keep our space as COVID safe as we can. The Lava Center is in downtown Greenfield. Uh, tell us where. Describe the space for us a bit. Well, it used to be an insurance company, and they took all the cubicles out, and now we have this, this kind of big open room with a few pillars in it, and one corner of it is what we call the stage. It's actually a large rug that defines it, and then we have long walls that we have a gallery show on. The current gallery show is Why I Stand, and it features stories of the people who are on the common every Saturday morning with their signs. Um, and um, then we also have, in that stage area, we often have music or open mics. Um, Paul Richmond's Third Tuesday, which is an in, sort of an institution of many years, uh, open mic from Human Error Publishing, is always there on Third Tuesday. So a lot of different stuff goes on. Has the Lava space. Center been open for a while now, post-COVID? Well, well we, op <laughs> we opened, actually, with spectacularly horrible timing just before COVID. Uh, we were open six weeks, and then we were shut down. And then eventually, when performance venues were allowed to reopen again, 
we were able to very slowly kind of open with very small audiences. And it's a small space anyway. We, we, don't, we will never have more than 35 people in the audience, even in a full house. How do people get tickets? They get tickets by going to the Lava Center Eventbrite.com. And uh, it's one little thing that could be confusing is we, tr- we try to keep our uh, admission absolutely on a voluntary basis. So you can get a ticket for a dollar if that's what you can afford. We do a suggested donation based on the budget for the project. But it's confusing because the way the tickets are set up, you can only get one ticket. So if you want to buy a ticket for five people, get one ticket and then let us know by emailing info at localaccess.org that it's really for five. So I have one last question for you before we bring Rabbi Justin David into this conversation. Mm -hmm. What did you learn that you didn't expect by producing this ensemble reading? I think one of the things that I learned, first of all, is how resonant uh, these details of a life in the 50s in this southern town are with our life today. I mean, there's so many issues that so much of the story is is kind of an underground kind of feeling. Uh, I've come to think of Richard's writing as, as gothic lyricism and... Um, to me, it resonates because I grew up in, in Indiana, which was also a border kind of place, a, you know, first state north of the Mason-Dixon line, but a lot of heavy influence of the South. And um, so for me, it resonates a lot personally on that level. But there's other dynamics like that, are, that we hardly think about anymore, like the dynamics between a, a Catholic and a non-Catholic getting married and how the Catholic side of it views that marriage resonates for me personally as well, but it's part of this story. We don't think about it so much these days because who cares who marries who, but it was a big deal in the 50s. And the other thing about it that I learned is, is, is I think the, the character goes through um, just a super huge struggle with all these things he's perceiving, and, and he's, he's a good kid, and it's a basically loving family that doesn't really exhibit the ardent racism of the people around them. So the struggle to kind of find your way in that world, ultimately it drives him to leave the area, but that's very end of the story. That um, sounds fascinating. Let's bring Rabbi Justin David into this conversation. Can we give Justin some walk-up music? Let's see. <laughs> Dan Torres is in for Monte Belmonte. I'm throwing him a curveball right now. Dan, here we go. This is Bill Newman. Okay. <laughs> Thank just you, Dan. Just in case anybody didn't know. <laughs> we now covered all bases. But I just wanted to add a quick, quick comment. It's very interesting. You're talking about Catholics marrying non-Catholics and that relationship made me think of JFK 1960s mm-hmm. and the country's relationship to that. And that's a segue right into the rabbi. Okay. Rabbi Justin David, microphone's yours. Yeah. Well, Jan, I was going to ask you another question. Um, you know, um, and I guess it's a two-in-one. I mean, I'm thinking about what um, feels different about, let's say, a live reading of a novel, uh, and particularly one as complex as this with so many voices, versus um, doing a play. Um, and related to that is just the feeling, you know, you mentioned, you know, we're in this time of COVID and we're trying to acclimate to to being out, and yet we're still ambivalent and cautious, and that's very much a, a sign uh, of the state of the world right now. 
Um, what does it mean to, to have this event in this moment, uh, live actors bringing this novel to life? Well, to me it means, yay, we're finally doing it. I'm taking these in reverse order and I may need a prompt to remember yeah. the first question. Uh, because it was one of the first things I wanted to do when we opened the Lava Center and then when we had to close it down, it went on hold. And so this has been in the wings, waiting in the wings for a couple of years. Um, and we are, we are just, um, again, rebuilding that audience. So it, it means uh, a lot to sort of commit to doing this important project at a time when audiences are still a little shy about coming back inside. But we try to make it as safe as possible. We filter the air. We, you know, we do all the, all the measures that keep it COVID safe. Um, so it's kind of a celebration to be able to do it. In terms of the difference between um, what it's like doing a play and this, this, is, this allows us to really celebrate, you know, relish, uh, delight ourselves with the lyrical language of the piece. When you have a play, um, if a character gets terribly lyrical, it can, it can sort of become a lull <laughs> rather than, you know, you're driving the action forward. This allows just really relishing the, the words themselves. I have a question for you, Rabbi, and it goes back to what Jan uh, Mayer just said about these uh, uh, couple coming together from different religious uh, faiths and uh, backgrounds and traditions. And what Jan just said was, well, that kind of tension is less today than it was in the 50s. I'm not so sure about that. What's your view? Um... I don't know. I mean, I ha I'd have to. I'd have to see the work. Um, I mean, in general, at least from a Jewish perspective, um, there there has been uh, kind of you know radical changes in the ways in which uh, differences in uh, the religious culture in which a person was raised um, is really not an issue. Um, uh, and um, you know, it used to be that there was a there were uh, that the mutual taboo uh, against um, you know against uh, intermarriage was much stronger than it is now across the board, not just for Jews marrying out or for Jews um, or for on the part of Jews of of uh, people from outside the Jewish faith marrying, but across the board. And sociological studies show that. Um, that being said, you know, we are entering a new era, I think, in parts of our country around uh, the celebration of cultural difference. And it'll be interesting to see where that takes us. Where does this novella take us, Jan Mayer? Well, it takes us to um, the, the we open with Cross Over the Bridge, uh, a little snippet of the Patty Page song of the era. And it takes us to a final bridge at the end where uh, um, the characters the ensemble speaking the voice of the writer uh, and of Bobby as an adult are confronting the bridge that you're always going over as you, as you sort out what your life means and where you're going next. It sounds like it really an emotional experience, this, this, this reading. It uh, is. It is. It's very moving to you as yes, the producer. Yes, it is. Yeah. And still, so, no, I can hear, hear it in your voice and see it in your face. It's really, yeah. seems to me it's a fascinating, fascinating uh, 
presentation. Again, this will be at the Lava Center. Tell us when and where and how to get tickets again, please. Okay, when and where again is this Friday and Saturday, 7 p.m. Um, tickets at thelavacenter.eventbrite.com. And um, what else? Uh, did I say it all? I think so. <laughs> Friday and Saturday, August 12th and 13th, 7 o'clock at the Lava Center and online on demand. More info available at thelavacenter.event eventbrite.com or localaccess.org. The Lava Center, local access to Valley Arts. Thank you so very much, Jan Mayer. Thank you so much, Rabbi, for being with us. We'll have more time next week on The Reverend and the Rabbi. We really appreciate you joining this conversation and for your insights as well. Thank you all so very much. Bill Newman, WHMP. Emotions and experiences play an important role in our financial decision-making. Every Saturday morning, hear real-life stories and positive solutions to issues we all face when it comes to our relationship with money. Financial Fitness with the Money Doctor, Francis Rayum, Saturday mornings at 8.30 on 101.5, 1400, and 12.40. WHMP. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillcorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at growfoodnorthampton.com. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock.